leave you feeling like an exile, especially when your Christian worldview and the worldview of the society in which you live collide. The off-year elections this past week was one of those days. I know many of you follow this, but as you know, Tuesday's election sent a shockwave through the pro-life movement as voters in Ohio approved what they called issue number one. Issue one was a ballot initiative to establish a state constitutional right to abortion. This so-called right, that is the right to kill your unborn child, will extend to at least 22 to 24 weeks of development. And this initiative didn't just pass. It passed with a comfortable margin. The last tally I saw showed that nearly 57% of the voters said yes to this initiative. On the briefing, Al Mohler described Tuesday as a nearly unmitigated disaster. He also said this, we have to face squarely the fact that since the Dobbs decision, that was the Supreme Court decision last year that overturned Roe v. Wade, we have lost just about every major statewide vote. That's a disturbing reality. And what it tells me is that the Christian worldview, the worldview that recognizes the sanctity of human life, that babies born or yet to be born are created in the image of God, that worldview is increasingly in the minority. And that reality didn't escape the notice of President Biden when he praised the Ohio measure, saying this, efforts across the country to restrict abortion access were out of step, this is a quote, out of step with the vast majority of Americans. Tonight, he said, Americans once again voted to protect their fundamental freedoms. And democracy won. Well, he's right about one thing. The Christian worldview is out of step with the vast majority of Americans these days. That's what it's like living in exile. For the record, though, can't help but say this, it has very little to do with my sermon, but the morality of an issue is never determined by the number of votes. It doesn't matter if 99.9% of American voters think that abortion or same-sex so-called marriage or transition surgery for minors is a good thing. The standard by which you determine right from wrong, good from evil, whether is the Word of God, whether it is in step with the vast majority of Americans or not. My point is simply this. Believers, you are in the minority. The world around you, in large part, disagrees with what you believe, and it's increasingly hostile to what you believe. You are in exile Yes, you are citizens of a great nation, and as Christian citizen, citizens, it's a privilege and an obligation to engage in the political sphere for the good of your fellow citizens. But first and foremost, you are exiles. 
You are exiles in this world, and your primary allegiance is to the Lord of the universe, not the U.S. Constitution. So as we turn to this morning's text, keep that in mind. You are exiles. Vancouver is not really your home. Yours is a heavenly country that God Himself has prepared. That's what exiles long for. So in a sense, you are the exiles to whom Peter is writing. Very specifically though, Peter is writing to exiles who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And while that's not widespread today, that kind of suffering may well be on the horizon, and I know that some of you have tasted of it. If you don't keep that perspective in mind, if you don't think of yourself as an exile, and Peter's words here may have very little impact on you, if you don't feel the strain of living in exile, then the glorious hope that Peter dangles before you doesn't even look necessary, much less glorious. If you don't feel the terror of a roaring lion that wants to rip you limb from limb, then the comfort, courage, and hope that Peter offers here just doesn't resonate with you. So my fellow exiles, let me make a few comments about this context and then we'll jump into this morning's passage. As you know, this letter written by the Apostle Peter is addressed to Christians, the elect exiles scattered throughout Asia Minor. Peter is now bringing his letter to a close, and he's giving specific instructions to specific groups of exiles. He addresses the elders, then those who are younger, and then he addresses everyone. And his message to everyone, that is all exiles suffering for the faith, his message is that you humble yourselves both horizontally and vertically. This is what Josh preached last week. Humble yourselves toward one another, verse 5, and humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, verse 6. And then Peter urges you to pray, casting all your anxieties upon the God of grace because He cares for you. Now let me say this. If you are not suffering today, and most of you aren't, I urge you to pay attention. Peter's message is for all of you, and I say that for two reasons. One, though today you're paddling on smooth water, most likely there will be rough waters ahead. And Peter's words here will prepare you for the rapids that are downstream. And secondly, if you're, secondly, you're a member of a family of believers. This text calls it a brotherhood which means that you have a responsibility to support and encourage your fellow exiles. Listen to Peter, so that when your sister suffers, you can take her to this text and encourage her and give her real hope. Which brings us to verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice that Peter gives two instructions, then he tells you why. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Because of your adversary, the devil. Then in verse 9, he gives two more instructions. 
Resist him and be firm in your faith. So it's like a burger. Two instructions on the top, two instructions on the bottom, and in the middle is the meat. That's the why. And we're going to talk about the why first. Peter has a most serious reason for these four instructions. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You have an enemy, an accuser. He is an evil spirit known as the devil or by his title, Satan. This is not fiction. The devil isn't that little creature with red tights and a pitchfork who appears suddenly on your shoulder now and again. No, the devil is a real and terrifying and evil spirit. But he is only a creature. He is not all-powerful, and he cannot be everywhere at once, so he works his evil in the world through a power structure of other evil spirits, as we see in Ephesians 6, where Paul describes it like this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's your enemy. The God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Peter's warning these exiles and you that spiritual forces of evil are behind your persecution. Yet you can take great comfort in knowing that the devil is on a leash. He can only go so far as our sovereign God allows, as we see in the example of Job in the Old Testament. The image of the devil that Peter uses here is that of a lion. The same image used in the Psalms to describe the enemies of God's people like David does in Psalm 7. This is a wonderful prayer. O Lord my God, in You do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. Now it's possible that Peter intends here for this image to evoke not just the scene of a lion prowling around the wilderness, but the scene of a public execution in a Roman Colosseum, where within just a few years of the reading of this letter, some of them would literally be fed to lions. Makes me wonder if, if that might not be the fiery trial that Peter was trying to prepare these exiles for. Remember what he said in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Well, Peter adds color to the image of the lion. He describes what it's doing. It's prowling, it's roaring, and it is looking for someone to kill. Prowling is the same image we find in the book of Job, where the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answers, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The devil is on the hunt. He's prowling around, going to and fro, seeking someone to devour. 
Now, some commentators think that Peter added the word roaring here merely for rhetorical purposes. But it actually seems to fit well with the image that he just gave us back up in verses 1 through 4. The image of believers as a flock of sheep and of elders as shepherds. The terror-inducing roar of a nearby lion sends the flock into a panic and scatters it into the wilderness where they're easy prey. I think the roaring of the devil is a tactic meant to terrorize you and meant to scatter you. Your enemy is a roaring lion and he is seeking someone to devour. He doesn't merely want to beat you down or bust your teeth. His aim, as one Puritan put it, is not to lightly hurt, but to swallow you up, to utterly destroy you, either by himself or by his instruments. The devil wants to annihilate you, and not only you, but the entire church. And he will use whatever means he can, trickery, terror, or temptation. He wants to weaken your faith, cause you to doubt the promises of God, get you to reconform to the mold of your former ways, and he wants to cause as much division and destruction in the church as he can. But as you know, the devil is on a leash, and you and I, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We've read that beautiful passage every week for the last six months. Now, because your enemy, brothers and sisters, is real and actively trying to terrorize and destroy you, Peter gives four instructions. Instruction 1, verse 8, be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to keep your head clear. Be clear-headed, he says. Sober, though, is vivid and accurate. When you're buzzed, you are not clear-headed. Beer, whiskey, and wine are dangerous when you're being hunted. Drink muddies your thinking, clouds your vision, dulls your hearing, and slows your reflexes. And when your life is in the balance, you must be clear-headed. But this isn't all about alcohol, though it applies. This is about anything in your life that can make your mind drunk and leave you vulnerable to the devil. It's the inordinate love of your house, your fly rod, your retirement plan, even your time-wasting obsession with Pinterest. Listen to the Puritan I quoted earlier. You'll love his English. Ye have to do with a mad enemy. He's a raging devil. Ye have need yourselves be sober, not only in meats and drinks, but as to the cares in this life and whatever it is that is apt to intoxicate your minds and expose you to him. Oh, we must be clear-headed. And that's our first instruction. Be sober-minded. Instruction number two, be vigilant. To be vigilant is to be watchful. So then, Paul says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. There's that word sober again. But Paul says, do not fall asleep. 
Stay awake. Be on guard. And that's exactly what Peter is telling us. Be vigilant. Stay alert, especially in the areas of your life where you know that you're vulnerable to attack. And for some of you, that's Netflix. And for others, it's the mall. Be watchful. Mason, this past week, shared a gem of a quote with me on this topic. It's from an early Puritan, Richard Rogers, and this is just a snippet. Watchfulness must be your companion all the time. And you must set this watch before the door of your lips and be well acquainted with looking diligently to your ways that it may go well with you and that you may prosper. But if you're a stranger to watchfulness, look to fall often. I mean to fall dangerously. Look to find many wounds in your soul. Some men view watchfulness as bondage, as depriving Christians of their freedom, as too strict. But watching is to the life what the eyelid is to the eye, and what the eye itself is to the whole body. And as your eye is easily aggravated, unless you carefully and wisely guard it from the wind and weather, so it is with your soul and your life when you do not take heed to them as you are taught by God's word and good instruction. For a due looking to your ways, that is, watchfulness, is the safety of your life. There's a roaring lion on the prowl. It is a dangerous time for shepherds and sheep to sleep. So be clear-headed, be vigilant. Instruction number three, and this is in verse nine, be unyielding. That is, be unyielding to the devil. Resist him. And resisting the devil means not yielding to his temptations. Now, this, com- this instruction overlaps with the other instructions like being sober-minded. When you find your mind intoxicated with drink, sex, ambition, or money, your inhibitions diminish. Your guard goes down. And oh, how easy it is when you're buzzed for those unkind words to come out of your mouth like, vomit, or to share that juicy little tidbit of gossip. Don't yield. Give no opportunity to the devil. And here's how you resist. You resist by employing the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So you put on your gospel armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with your armor on, resist the devil by pouring out your heart in prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert as be watchful with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. So pray for one another as well. Resist the devil, wrote James, and he will flee from you. Instruction number four, be firm in your faith. 
Your trust in the God of all grace must be unwavering. There's nothing extraordinary about this word firm. It simply means solid as opposed to soft. The author of Hebrews uses this word twice, and both times it's about spiritual food. He says you need milk, not solid food or not firm food. So be firm, not soft or liquid in your faith. Don't be tossed about by every wind. Don't waver. When the waves of suffering come crashing upon you and threaten to carry you out to sea, cling firmly to the immovable rock of ages. That is firmness of faith. Now, if you are suffering this morning, or if you're paying attention so that you can be of help to a fellow exile, you may well be wondering, where is the comfort in all of that? I'm stressed out of my mind here. My husband is leaving because he hates being married to a Christian. I just lost my job because I took a stand and refused to take advantage of a customer. I don't even know how I'm going to pay my mortgage this month. And up to this point, all you've really done, Tate, is put me on high alert. I know the devil's behind this attack. I know he's trying to destroy me and my family. I know he's trying to destroy my faith and get me to give up and go back to my old ways. But no, I'm not going to be lion food. I'm going to stay clear-minded and be vigilant. I'm not going to yield to the devil and his temptations. I'm going to cling with all my might in faith to Christ. But is that all there is? Is there any comfort? Is there any hope for me to hold on to? Well, there absolutely is. Take a look at the end of verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he's just beginning to give them comfort. Peter is saying, take comfort from knowing that you are not alone in this. In chapter 4, he said it like this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Your suffering is not strange. It's not strange because it is expected in this life. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise we don't want to quote often. But it's also not strange because the same thing is happening to other believers around the world. Did you know that more than 360 million Christians worldwide are being persecuted and discriminated against because of their faith? That's one out of every seven believers. You are not alone. Did you know that last year, 5,621 Christians were killed because they were Christians? And there is comfort in knowing that you are not alone in your suffering. 
You're part of a worldwide brotherhood of believers. You have brothers and sisters who have suffered like you, some of them far worse, who have resisted the devil and stayed firm in their faith, who can walk with you through your suffering, or who you can look to as an example of suffering faithfully to the very end, who even now are enjoying their great reward in heaven. So take comfort from the solidarity you have with fellow sufferers. Your fiery trial is not a strange thing. But there's more comfort to be had. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, let's just stop right there, a little while, your suffering, brothers and sisters, is not going to last forever. It's 70 or 80 years at the most. It's but a mist gone in a flash when the sunlight breaks through the clouds. Your life here is but an 80-year mist, and it cannot compare to the endless days of glory that you will spend reveling in the presence of the God of all grace. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we'd first begun. Peter already mentioned this in chapter 1. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And the Apostle Paul seems to take comfort in this as well. He says, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. So take comfort, one, from knowing that you are not alone, and two, from knowing that your suffering is temporary. Well, taking comfort is one thing, but having hope is what you really want. Continuing in verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Fellow exiled, Take hope from knowing that your God is the God of all grace. I don't think this phrase is used anywhere else in the Bible. I think it is beautifully original to the Apostle Peter. Grace. I've said this before. Grace is the goodness of God overflowing or being communicated or emanating from Him in life-giving and empowering love to hell-deserving sinners. That's grace. So that God is the God of all grace means that He is the very found fountain of that undeserved love. All grace that ever was, that is, or that ever will be springs from this fountain. There is no grace that does not originate 
in your God. Now, how does that stir up hope within the soul of a suffering believer? Three ways. One, because it assures you that God is for you, not against you. Here's what I mean. The pinnacle of grace is the cross. In fact, all grace is blood-bought grace. And if that's true, then the fact that He is the God of all grace, that He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for you, you can, in the midst of your suffering, say with confidence that if He would do that, how will He not also with Him graciously give me all things? What shall I say to these things? If the God of all grace is for me, who can possibly be against me? Now that is rock-solid hope. Number two, God being the God of all grace stirs hope because it assures you that as the fountain of all grace, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That blood-bought, grace-empowered sufficiency extends to every good work. From taking your neighbor to the ER at two in the morning, to losing your head at the sword of your persecutor, every good work work because he is the god of all grace he is able to make all grace abound and therein is rock solid hope for the believer to endure suffering and number three god being the god of all grace stirs up hope in your soul because you are weak and if that sounds odd hear me out you're weak and you know that the power of Christ is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, grace is all that you need. And the God of all grace has an infinite supply of the grace that you need. And Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. I don't know what that was. But he said it was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my sufferings, he says, my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. So your weakness can stir up hope within you because your weakness is the very arena in which the power of Christ is made perfect. Boast all the more gladly then of your weaknesses and take hope in knowing that your God is the God of all grace. We're still in verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's another cause for taking hope. It's in knowing that the God who has called you has called you to his eternal glory. This is something we've discussed in the past. This is his effectual calling. This is God calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's grace that you find irresistible. It's a shaft of divine light into your soul that gives life to the dead and sight to the blind. That's the calling in view here. And to what does Peter say you were called? You were called to his glory in Christ. There's a beautiful contrast that Peter just set up. Your suffering will last for a little while, but your glory in Christ will last forever. And listen to Paul tell the Romans about this glory. We're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And here's how he says it to the Thessalonians. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering exiles one day, you will partake in a sense of the glory of Christ. You will be glorified. And you can bank on that because those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Take hope in knowing that God has called you to his eternal glory. And that eternal glory includes the complete reversal of all the slander and shame that you have suffered for his sake. We rejoice then in the hope of the glory of God. One more cause for hope. It's at the end of verse 10. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These four action words are so close in meaning that it's probably not helpful to break them apart and define them one at a time. The meanings overlap and some of them are nearly identical. Peter's point is simply this. God will make all things right. And therein lies your hope. There is nothing that you have lost in this life, in your suffering, even if you've lost life itself, for the sake of Christ that will not be fully restored and made right. This is the great hope of all believers. Everyone, Jesus said, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's where your hope lies that's why Jesus said that you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. 
It's why you're blessed when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on His account. You can rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. And brothers and sisters, if that's how your suffering ends, you have a great and glorious hope to hold on to. And now we come to verse 11. This is the conclusion of this section, and it's a doxology. I'm not going to expound it. You'll usually know doxologies when you see them in the Scriptures. Peter has finished declaring the comfort and hope that God holds out to suffering people, to His suffering people. And as he finishes, he just bursts forth in praise. And for me to take this inspired burst of praise and dissect it and pretend to offer some meaningful commentary is like trying to explain a love song or a symphony orchestra. In my attempt to explain the impact and the beauty will be lost in my calculated terms and definitions. You see, holy texts like this should be heard and felt and sung and not expounded by the likes of me. Let's read this together. Verse 11. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Sing that on the days when you feel the reality of your exile. As it becomes more and more clear that this world does not share your worldview, and is even hostile to your worldview. As you watch them cheer the right as they fancy it to kill the unborn, take courage and take hope in the one who has dominion and will one day make all things right. Brothers and sisters, to the God of all grace, to Him alone be the might, the power, the absolute dominion throughout all of eternity. Truly, truly, let it be. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I... I know that there are people who are suffering, and I know that many of us here are involved in the lives of people who are suffering. Father, we want to be of help. So, Father, I pray that these, that these words, God-breathed from the Apostle Peter 2,000 years ago, would breathe, breathe fresh life and hope and comfort into these suffering exiles. Oh, Father, help us to bring comfort and encouragement using these words, your words, to those who are hurting. Oh, Father, help us to do that. I pray right now that, that these words landed in hearts that are like good soil. Father, I pray that there would be such an explosion of hope and comfort 
that those who are suffering here today would be radically changed in the way that they think and feel. Oh, Father, do that miracle today in the hearts of your people. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his glory, amen.